Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to a brand new episode of Kaiji Conversation. I'm your host, Elijah, and joining me all the way from Ogasawara Island is Nathan Marchand from the Monster Island Film Vaults. Hello, Kaiju Conversationalists! <laughs> yes, Nathan is joining me today to talk about an awesome movie. So, I guess before we get in, Nathan, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, but you forgot to mention somebody else. Oh, I'm so sorry, Jimmy. I, I forgot that you were going to uh, hop into this episode with Nathan and I. He only flew me here. He's my pilot. He's like my Uber driver, except he flies a giant mech. <laughs> named Uber Mogre. He built the dang thing himself. And to my surprise, you have a back parking lot. I did not realize this. That's yes. impressive. I mean, do you keep this around for any time that you need to park a big mech back there? I'm sure you do. Because yeah, you know, uh, and that's how you uh, that's how you roll. So um, what it is is secretly the parking lot opens up into a giant pool. Um, yeah, and then whenever we need a parking lot, we, we put the parking uh, lot over the pool. Um, it's very, very expensive, but, uh, very, very beneficial. Yeah, I can tell, I can tell. That's, uh, that's quite impressive. And I must say, I am very grateful that you were willing to put our little rivalry on Kaiju Weekly aside to have me on your show. I have been. Very honored and weirdly excited all week to be on this podcast. I mean, I, I've, I've been... Right now, my friend. For now. Oh, no. Well, <laughs> I might have to get Michael involved here. I might, I might have to see if he can uh, get me I, on the next few recordings yeah, of Kaiju Weekly. Yes, and for what I understand, th he's... Uh, I mean, I won't you know, necessarily speak for him, but I, I get the impression he's a wee bit perturbed that I got to be on your show first. I'm not sure what his deal is, but, you know. Hey, Michael. <laughs> winning. <laughs> oh, no. Actually, what I should say, first. Apparently <laughs> on YouTube, and whenever no. you video they type in first so they can say they got the first comment on oh no oh no i'm gonna get some hate messages from michael <laughs> hey hey you should see the back and forth he's got going on with jimmy yes i know you've developed a weird habit of getting into flame wars with my guests he was you drop michael off in the jungle one time and mm. Yeah, that happened. Yeah, that happened. That's why I had to be on Kaiju Weekly that week. You know, when Travis was covering Night of the Leapest, Michael didn't want to have anything to do with that, so he decided to take a little vacation to Monster Island. So Jimmy dropped him off in the jungle. Oh no! And crazy things happened. Uh, oh boy! Now, now I gotta. I'm gonna have to talk to Jimmy after this. I gotta. I gotta get the full story here. Oh. That's all you, man. <laughs> you know, Jimmy, I think Jimmy's a great guy. 
Um, I, I don't understand why Michael uh, condemns him so much. I, I think it's just they have those kinds of personalities where they just butt heads. It happens. I mean, some people think that Jimmy and I hate each other, and the. That couldn't be farther from the truth. We just badger each other on the air because it makes good radio. <laughs> of course, of course. And I mean, I gotta say, Jimmy, you are like the unsung hero of the Monster Island film ball. Yes, I know. Sometimes you get more love than I do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh. So why are you having uh, the, the uh, us two knuckleheads on your show today, Elijah? Well, the reason I'm having you on, um, not only to tell Michael that he's going to be the last person on my podcast, <laughs> but it's also because I think you have a great, great knowledge and love for this Big monkey film we're talking about. Yes, Jimmy, just like you said on our show. Well, my show, not our show. He's an ape, not a monkey. I get it. That's what they tells us, okay? I get it. If the vegetables say he's an ape, not a monkey, listen to the vegetables. Listen, Ape is an awful movie that can't compare to this one. <laughs> So, Jimmy, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. He's talking to you, man. Ooh, Jimmy, what terrible language. I'm going to have to edit this episode. I would be very disappointed, I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and we're friends with them. It's just so you know, I mean. Anyway, yeah, we're talking about monkey. Yes, the big monkey. Um, yeah, but anyway... Uh, so I just figured, you know, why not have my friend from over at Ogasawara, who even has worked with the big guy, um... Uh, if by work with him you mean fought him in a giant robot, yes. I mean, it sounds, sounds like working with him to me. Yes, but it's, uh, it was also me saving Jimmy's hide. With Matt and Brad from Giant Monster BS, I might add. Of course. <laughs> you know, yeah, actually it would be because I mean, have you have you ever heard them not call the Rock's personal trainer working with the Rock? Yeah, it's always you know, it's you are Kong's personal trainer. That's what you are. I should be. I should be. I need a good side hustle on the island anyway. I'll take that up with the board. My Orwellian overlords. Mm-hmm. 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 I feel like I'm going to get contacted by quite a few people that are going to be either frustrated with you or have multiple questions. (laughs) (laughs) I will be happy to field those questions. (laughs) It wouldn't be the first time. Uh, But yes, so... About our most recent acquisitions to our collections? Of course. I came prepared. I came prepared, sir. So what have you gotten, Nathan? Are we talking just our wonderful physical media collections, or are we talking other things? Anything and everything. If you got a new toilet plunger, let's talk about it. <laughs> yes, I have a Godzilla toilet plunger. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> 
Are you sure you're not on drugs? Anyway, the, I was thinking of because in terms of my most recent acquisitions, and it's too bad that you're talking to me now because I have, well, shall we say, a little money coming in from a side hustle when I'm not curating films here on the island. Don't tell the board. So uh, I'm planning on adding a lot of things to my collection that vicariously I will then be adding to the film vault on Monster Island, hence the title of my show. But in terms of my most recent acquisitions, I have recently procured the Criterion version of The Blob. Yes, Travis, I see The Blob and you don't. But you're welcome to come to the island to see it. We have a little piece of the blob on display. We keep it in a bucket. That sounds dangerous. It is, but we got the best minds and technology on the island, my friend, to make sure that doesn't happen. I mean, they said that in 1999. And we don't talk about the disco space nuns. <laughs> We do not talk about the Disco Space Nuns. That is the one blemish on our record. No. But anyway, so I have acquired that. And I also, my friend Chris Cook from Canuckland, uh, the host of One Cross Radio, recently sent me the Mill Creek release of Ultraman X. Nice. Have you watched any FX? I've seen the movie, weirdly enough, because someone sent me that funny little Walmart exclusive that had the Ultraman X and Ultraman Ginga movies. Is it Ginga? Yes, it's Ginga S. Yeah, so I watched that just for the heck of it because it was supposed to be uh, an anniversary film of sorts for Ultraman, <laughs> and it was Ultraman Day, so I'm like, let's watch an anniversary movie. Ask Michael about it. We watched it together. I got three words for you. Cotton candy cannon. Oh my god, you just made me more hungry. <laughs> You're welcome. But oh. cotton candy cannon, that is a thing. It's cannon? Yes. And no, Jimmy, I don't think a cotton candy cannon would be a good addition for Mechanicong Mark II. Jimmy, I think you're right. You think he... Okay. Okay. You heard it, folks. Elijah Thomas has decreed Mechanicong Mark II, the rebuild Mechanicong on Monster Island, thanks to Jimmy, needs to have a cotton candy cannon. Yes. And I want it at every party I attend. Very well, then. <laughs> you go to parties? <laughs> um, I, I have some for my, me, myself, and I. Well, then, maybe what you need to do is ask Jimmy to build you and you cotton candy cannon for yourself that's a great idea and then when yourself comes to the party me and my me myself and i can enjoy some cotton candy of course yeah. there you go and then if somebody is getting a little unruly at the party you can wrap yeah. them in a, a pink laser that makes cotton candy because that's what happens in that movie i think that's a great idea um, but then what I'm are your recent acquisitions? My recent um, acquisitions. Uh, I got the SHMA uh, Biolante finally. Uh, uh, that does look nice. 
it's 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 uh very big very big um i don't have room for it <laughs> <laughs> i have room for biolante on the island let me tell you yeah i might have to sell one of my or a few of my 11 copies of biolante to, to make <laughs> some space for it i can't believe you <laughs> ladies and gentlemen i have to tell you I thought I loved physical media. This man is insane. This man owns how many copies of Godzilla 98? More than uh, eight own. I think 16. Either 16 or 17. Because one copy is not enough. We must have them all. I also have 18 copies of Godzilla 2014. Uh, and 17 copies of uh, Gojira slash King of the Monsters. A lot of people call it hoarding. I own old, my, my old copies. <laughs> They've been circulating in the tertiary market for a while, and you know, one of them has ended up in your possession. I should have put my <laughs> should have put my initials on it or something, just to make sure. And then whenever I get it, I can be like, oh, it's, it came all the way from Ogasawara. And then well, I can, uh, well, in this case, it would, have, it would have come from Indiana because, you know, ah. the copies I had before I went to Ogasawara. That's fair. That's fair. Anyway, and, so, Maialante, and what else? Um, so, what, I get a lot. I got Hikider on Blu-ray. That, uh, that I need to procure at some point. I've heard nothing but good stuff about it. Uh, it's and, Mia, so... That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I've <laughs> seen several of Keita Amamiya's films, so I kind of know what to expect. Yeah, I, I didn't realize this, but I, so I've got Hikider, I've got Moon Over Tau, I've got most of the Garo series, um, and I didn't realize it, but those are all by him. Yep. So, And I, I ordered Zerum oh, 2. I Ladies and gentlemen, is his goal is to watch all of Tokusatsu. Everything available officially in the U.S. on physical, I plan on purchasing. Did I mention he's broke? What was that? He said, did I mention he's crazy? And has I, a very, very thin wallet. I think that it, if you're listening to this podcast, I think it should be known that I am very crazy. Um, <laughs> I'm starting that there might have to be an intervention. I'm just saying. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that this podcast is secretly the story of my integration into society. <laughs> um, you can't and- do you're working toward your Darth Gatekeeper status. Come on. Yeah, that's true. Well, maybe maybe the final episode is when I snap and I go into Darth Vader mode and I uh, go off the deep end and I need a leak. And then we can, <laughs> we can have a new podcast, Kaiju Versations Con. And <laughs> it's all about uh, learning about how to stop me and it ends with me getting thrown um through a computer screen um 
because I have redeemed myself and realized that the internet has had enough of me. (laughs) (laughs) I approve of this. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently so does Jimmy. (laughs) Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks so much. I thought you were going to start a completely new podcast called Kaiju Converse, which is all about kaiju shoes. I'm just saying. I mean, it would work with my Twitter handle. (laughs) And then I should contact Converse Shoes. That's right. That's a great idea. Yes. Every episode, it'll be like Dr. Pepper in Godzilla 1985. It'll just show up. Everywhere. <laughs> so t- uh, today, Godzilla vs. Kong 2 came out. And by the way, by Converse. So uh, you, did you see that haymaker that Godzilla landed on Kong by Converse? I- <laughs> yeah, I mean, I went to see it in the theaters um, by my Converse store. I wore my Converse shoes in. Um, they, my Converse shoes were really comfortable while watching it in the movie theater. Um, <laughs> During the big screen, you know, my Converse, they were perfect, so they didn't get in the way um, when I was leaning back in my chair. Um, I should probably say this episode is in no way um, paid for or... uh, This episode is not paid for or promoted by Converse whatsoever. Not yet. (laughs) Not yet. Nope. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Uh, All right, so enough of this nonsense. <laughs> Unless you have more the collection news to let us all know about. Yeah, so I also I spent a lot of money, um, <laughs> as I do, um, on I got seasons thirteen through seventeen of Power Rangers. Yes, so that's yes. exciting. I actually. Um, um, and I blame you, Michael, because I know you listen to this show. The, he uh, was insisting that I start checking out some Power Rangers. Also, the executive assistant to the board, a Miss Perkins, was also particularly insistent that I start archiving Power Ranger episodes. And now I actually find myself wanting to buy Power Ranger seasons. It's a little insane. Well, I will say this, um, and this is why I haven't been i haven't purchased mighty morphin yet it's getting a re-release this month yeah. mm-hmm. um and i'm gonna buy that i'll buy that um and then uh i don't know if i'll watch it because i'm a purist so i have to watch the sentai version first um, <laughs> so i don't know how i'm gonna make it through sentai and power ranger but yeah uh so i i got that those ep- seasons of power rangers um, I got the Mezco King Kong figure. Um, mm. So now I got it with my NECA. Mm. Um, I got... I'm trying to think here. Oh, I got my eighth copy of Gamma Revenge of Iris, or seventh copy of Revenge of Iris, and seventh copy of Legion, eighth copy of Guardian of the Universe, and my fourth, yeah. fifth copy of Gamma the Brave. You gotta be kidding me! There are that many editions of that thing. Yes. Um, in the U.S. What was that? In the U.S. Yes. So, um, 
Guardian of the Universe has a VHS release. Oh, it's I got VHS. It's got two DVD releases from ADB. It's got a double pack from Mill Creek on Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. It's got a triple pack on Blu-ray from Mill Creek. It's got right. the Legacy Collection. Um, and then you have the Complete Collection from Arrow. And then the Heisei era. Oh, I have nine copies of it. I have the Heisei trilogy steelbook uh, too. It's all coming back to me now. I actually have the the arrow set and the three pack. I had the three pack before the arrow set came out. Normally, <laughs> unlike you, <laughs> I would part with it because I'm a, I consider myself a bit of a practical collector. But my That's just lazy. <laughs> But it is your three pack signed by the director? Um, no, but I have a photo with the director, and I have a signature from Kaneko. So, um, how many times have you met Kaneko? Once. Okay. How many photos with him do you have? One. Okay, we're even. I. I... <laughs> <laughs> at everything now. <laughs> <laughs> Except you know, win for most copies of Godzilla '98. I mean, if you go for it, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So according to my list here, I have eight copies of Guardian of the Universe, seven copies of Legion, seven copies of Virus. But I haven't computed the Heisei era Blu-ray set, so it's nine, eight, and eight. So, yeah, I, and it's, it's uh, I feel like we need to uh, start a second podcast that's all about kaiju physical media. Yeah, I've I have thought about uh, doing like uh, YouTube videos on like the best releases and how you can have a complete collection. We need to make uh, the, uh, our video. We've been promising that's that. For we need to actually make true. that happen. At some point, we're going to make that happen, sir, because I have learned how to make that easier for us. We need to. But, uh, you know, we've been talking now for 20 minutes, a good 20 minutes about some great high-class quality stuff. But where is the big monkey? You know, last I checked. <laughs> him and Godzilla got put in timeout by the board because they've been getting really unruly the last I've heard. few months. I've heard. God, they're they need to learn some manners. <laughs> but you know, they are kaiju, so uh, you're hard pressed to find any polite kaiju unless your name is Mothra or Pigmon. Pigmon, yes, Pigmon. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Thankfully, we have managed to keep Pigmon from constantly dying. Good. Because Pigmon is a ball of fur that everybody should admire and love for who he is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the kids love Pigmon. Yeah. Del Toro loves Pigmon. Everybody loves Pigmon. (laughs) That's true. Pigmon, you have no heart. I'm just saying. That's very true. So, anyway. We are here to discuss the 1933 classic, co-directed by Ernest Chodazak, uh, or yeah, Ernest Chodazak and Marion C. Cooper, 
special effects by Willis O'Brien, starring uh, what's this? Uh, ah, it's it's blinking uh, my brain. Robert Armstrong, Robert Armstrong, and uh, favorite. The amazing film that is King Kong. So, to get things started, Nathan, why don't you share with us some of your personal history with this film? Well, here's the interesting thing. The first King Kong movie that I can ever remember seeing, weirdly enough, was King Kong vs. Godzilla. (laughs) And then after that, I became obsessed with seeing the other Kong films. Now, you have to understand, I grew up without cable, so it's not like I could just wait for the thing to show up on TCM and you know, on a Friday night or whatever. So, from a very early age, I became obsessed, much like you, with physical media. So, I scoured every video store I ever came across trying to find, well, a lot of things, but the original Kong 33 was high on my list, and it was a pain in the neck to find it. I couldn't believe it. I could find the remake everywhere, but I could, the 76 remake, I mean, but I could not find the original version for the life of me. I don't think I was, I was able to see it until... I think late in high school, somewhere thereabouts, and I was ecstatic to finally see it. You know what's really crazy? I read the novelization before I saw the movie. That's how hard it was to find this thing, at least in my neck of the woods. Out of curiosity, which did you like more, the novelization or the, the movie? It's been a hot minute since I've read the novelization, but it's hard for me to pick. I think I still defer to the movie, but the novelization is actually really good, and it expands on some things that are not in the movie. So, it's really cool for that. And then, probably the most interesting thing that's happened is, (laughs) before the island went into quarantine, the local theater on the island, it's called The Denim, for obvious reasons, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was one of the last movies that was screened there before the world went insane. Yeah, and I, I can relate to that because uh, I went to, I got tickets to see it because this is the first time since, was it 52 that it was released in theaters or my, it, I, it's I, been a while. It's been a while. I think it's been re released since 52. I could be wrong. It's probably somewhere in my notes, but uh, I'd have to do a control F here to find it. So it's it's been over forty years. I know that. I know it's yeah. been wide wide. So whenever I heard that was getting released, I was like, I'm not missing this opportunity. Uh, so I got tickets, and I I saw it right before quarantine also happened. I think it was like a day before every every. Uh, shut down mm-hmm. and yeah it was it was stressful because like there was five people in the theater and i was like please don't cancel the showing please <laughs> hey i have been 
to some movies where I was the only person there. I have two. And I feel no shame for that one time I saw King of the Monsters. Even though it's a pretty bad movie, all things considered. Right, Michael? Don't get me started. <laughs> we started, I will fight you on that. Because that's apparently what we do now. <laughs> apparently. Uh, yeah, I also have an episode on that coming out in a few weeks. So You have my condolences. <laughs> uh, so, Monkey. <laughs> monkey, big monkey, very big monkey. Monkey change sizes. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> um, but that per on purpose, uh, I should say. Oh, dang it! I'm a terrible nerd. His name is escaping me. Uh, Will O'Brien. Will O'Brien did that on purpose because he wanted to make the New York scenes look more dramatic. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's very true. Um, did you have any other, uh, anything else you wanted to share about your history with King Kong? That's basically it. Uh, it was a pain in the neck to finally see it, and I was very, very happy when I did. Would you say it's one of your most memorable movies you've seen, or not? Oh, yes. Yeah, I adore this movie. <laughs> I, I'm gonna. I, you know, we're kind of skipping ahead to the end here because amazing the, cinema as we know it would not exist. Very without true, and this I movie. really want to get into that um here a little later on because that's, oh, yeah. that's a great point. I guess I'll go ahead and share my little little history with this film. Um, back when I was, I think it was around seven. Uh, I went. An IMAX screen uh, of a dinosaur documentary, and before the documentary showed, this random still with some text uh, appeared um, on the screen, and it was of a giant gorilla with a reed, and he was attacking a dinosaur. It was in black and white, and I remember I I looked at my mom and I was like. What's that? And then she said, That's King Kong. And I said, What what's King Kong? I, I need to see this. And eventually it was a while before I actually saw the film. Um, but I ended up seeing it. And I don't remember my first time seeing it. King Kong has always been like a third or fourth uh fear kaiju or giant ape. <laughs> I know, I I know. We're not. That's that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> um, but uh, I I don't remember when I saw it. Uh, but I do know that I was really surprised by it. You know, it, it's 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 stuck around with me. I wouldn't say it's been hugely influential personally. Uh. As I prefer a certain 2005 Peter Jackson remake. Oh, which is wonderful, by the way. It is, it is. And I, I, do, I do want to do an episode where I discuss why I think that film is superior. But I that, in saying that, I'm not saying 33 is inferior either. Really? Hmm. <laughs> I'm intrigued. 
that'll that should I should fast track that. But yeah, so that's my history um with the film. I only own one copy of it. Two copies <laughs> actually. Uh two copies. I um, own two copies of one of the greatest movies ever That's it. <laughs> 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 I have three million copies of Godzilla 98, but I only have two of King Kong. <laughs> uh, actually, I do have one last point um, of the personal history I had with uh, King Kong that I think is going to rattle you. So I'm oh. going to go ahead and share it. So at work, I was selling uh, guys some, some movies, and they were. They were all like 40s noir uh, classic uh, films. Mm-hmm. And he was talking to me how much he liked old movies. Uh, he said Dangerous Game, uh, the what? one that Cooper, uh, Cooper uh, directed, right? Yeah, uh, it was Shotzak. Shotzak, okay. Uh, you know, he, he name dropped that and was talking about how he loved noir and the classic, classic cinema. And I was like, oh, yeah, uh, do you, have you seen King Kong? And he looked at me, and he was disappointed. And he said, I cannot stand King Kong. He said it had awful characters. He said it had awful characters. It was boring. It was stupid. And that it's inferior to stuff like uh, Dangerous Games. He said the action was just bad. I don't know who you are, sir, but we can't be friends. <laughs> so, there's... Listening to this fine, fine podcast hosted by this fine young man here. Shame on you. <laughs> so, there's something to rattle your bones. Oh, what was, uh, what's the dragon in Mulan? So, dishonor on you! Dishonor on your family! Dishonor on your cow! I've never seen Mulan, so I have no idea what that reference is. <laughs> I, I, I've, I haven't seen Lion King. I don't get Lion King references, so... You just hate animated movies. We're moving I on. I do. I do. <laughs> um, so that's my personal history uh, with the film. But I, it's not a lot, but I still have a deep respect for this this work of art. As you should. So I because, guess... Because oh. without King Kong, there would be no Godzilla. Which means exactly. there would be no Tokusatsu. Exactly. Well, yes and no. Because there was Tokusatsu before Godzilla. There were, of course, Subaraya's war films um, and other war films. <laughs> But and inspired by King Kong from an early age. True. And so that means there would be no Invisible Man Returns. There was the Rainbow Man. There would have been Rainbow Man. And I thought there was another film. Thought it went. Uh, no, I guess it, it was Invisible Man appears. Rainbow Man, Gojira, uh, Rage Again. Warning from Space and Rodan. and I think that's, that's the order of the first six or five, I don't remember, Tokusatsu uh, sci-fi films go. I could be wrong. Um, but there were some earlier, like, TV shows. Not good, but 
<laughs> you do have a point. <laughs> Which, actually, sure. I have been described as the kaiju academic. That's why you have you're having me on the show. <laughs> oh, don't don't give yourself too much credit. <laughs> I'm only repeating what other people have said. Yeah, well, up, Jimmy. Okay, good. Jimmy's on my side, but. I actually, I think that's a great point to kind of lead into our discussion here. Mm -hmm. The impact and influence King Kong has had. Um, oh. Do you want to start us off here, or do you oh, want me to start off? Where do we even start? <laughs> it's uh, Where do we even start? Let's start with the obvious, I guess you could say. This film revolutionized filmmaking. In particular... Oh effects. I mean, there's one Lost scene. World. What? Lost World beat it. True, but more people saw King Kong than Lost World. True. Particularly people who work in filmmaking. And because of that, we have things like ILM and Tokusatsu and all of that. Willis O'Brien what he did in The Lost World was impressive, but he did even more in this. There's one scene in this movie. It's when Kong takes Anne back to his lair, where I, if I remember correctly, I'm trying to remember, it's been a while since I've listened to the commentary on this movie. That scene alone, I think, has five or six special different special effects techniques being used in it. And they look seamless. It is amazing because you have the stop motion, you have matte paintings, you have uh, I'm trying to remember, uh, you have rotoscoping, I think, and then there's uh, I'm trying to remember what the technique was, but the the when they have Anne and Jack off to the sides in the frame, those were actually done in camera. While O'Brien was doing the stop motion, he literally had the indivi uh, individual images of the individual frames from when Shozak and Cooper filmed the, those two actors doing their stuff. And he had these just these individual pictures and he would pull it out, move all the miniatures a little bit and he would photograph it and keep going. It, it's amazing what he did. And I really love. Um, since we're going into the special effects here, I love the. I'm trying to remember the technique it was called, but it was where they would, where they had, like the actors on screen, and then they would have a screen behind them with. Oh, back projection. Yes. Um, and wasn't there multi projection in the film too? If I remember correctly, yes, because they had to. The, uh, you know, all of the jungle scenes are multi-layered, and they had to, or maybe, or am I thinking of Congo Five? I could be. I'm not sure, but uh, there's more. I think no, I do think it's this one because they had to kind of cheat a little bit, and they had to do. Well, they did multiple layers to really make the jungle look thick on Skull Island. <laughs> I stand corrected. You had to do this to me. Well, not to me, but you had to do the guess. King Kong. <laughs> hey, it's not called Skull Island in this. That's true. That's very true. Skull Island, but no one calls it that in the movie. Anyway, 
So yes, so the there's so many things, and you know what's really insane about this? Basically, all of the special effects in this movie were done by O'Brien. He had an assistant with him, but he basically did everything. The man was a machine, and <laughs> if you look into his biography, the man was a workhorse. And really, when he believed in a project, he really, really, really believed in a project. Problem is that he needed to be reeled in a little bit because he had a bad habit of taking too long and going over budget. <laughs> Which is how he ended up on King Kong. Ouch. Well, it's because he was working on a project called Creation, Creation. Mm-hmm. that uh, it never got finished because, like I said, it went over time and it went over budget. But Marion C. Cooper saw what footage he did finish, and he said, Hey, you, Mr. O'Brien, you want to come work with me on this movie? Mm-hmm. And the rest is history. Also, I think before we go any further, we mentioned Lost World as, you know, the special effects. But we need to address Ngagi, because that does not get addressed when discussing influences, especially for Kong. Because if it wasn't for Ngagi, King Kong would not have been a thing. Mm. And do you know much about Ngagi? Weirdly enough, I, weirdly enough, I do not. Enlighten me. Okay, so Ngagi is a 1930s exploitation film. Um, I'll try and keep it G because it's, it's, it's <laughs> disturbing. It's a disturbing movie. Um, it actually recently got a release from Kino Lobror on blu-ray and i am thinking about picking it up because it was thought to be banned um because of some stuff in it um oh but essentially it's about a gorilla who is kind of lustful um and does some questionable things um and that's about as much as i know i know it came out in 1930 and i know because of that film and how well it did um, Cooper wanted to do a giant gorilla movie. Kaiju conversationalist, you can't see how hard I'm wincing, right? <laughs> oh, hmm. It's, uh, I don't know if I'll ever address this film on the podcast outside of passing, simply because I don't know if I can actually sit through it. Um, from what I've heard is in the movie, I don't know if I want to see that. I couldn't really tell you the answer you know, for me is a whopping no. So Well, you won't watch Cutie Honey, so... Actually, I have a copy of Cutie Honey. Shut your mouth! <laughs> you won't watch Sexy Rangers. Now that's where I draw the line. <laughs> line might have drawn a little bit before that, but... <laughs> Kikini Honey is on the other side. Uh, it's not that bad. One of these days, I'm going to get you to watch it. Uh, well, I will say this. I will make this official. I will say this on the air. You can hate me all you want, Elijah. I have a feeling Sexy Rangers is better than Yeti, but only because there are hot chicks in it. <laughs> oh no, no, Yeti. Yeti is amazing. Those have you the Blu-ray? His nipples are in HD. 
Oh my god. Uh, Elijah, it's a little bit disturbing hearing you gush about high definition nipples when the nipples in question are neither human nor female. You know, I have a photo. <laughs> never no never mind, never mind. I'm not gonna get into it. Ingagi. So yeah. King Kong was inspired <laughs> by an exploitation <laughs> film. <laughs> Uh, you know, we're we're drawing the line at I have a photo, and <laughs> we're not going past that line. <laughs> to quote a great man, the line must be drawn here, this far, no farther. Yep. Uh, I'll let you guys at home fill in the rest of that sentence, and you can tweet me it. You can at me, and you can say I have a picture of a. <laughs> uh this this episode is so far off the rails, just like the movie and the train. But uh... <laughs> which fun fact? Did you know that that originally was not in the script? I feel like I've heard that somewhere, but I did not know it when you said it. But <laughs> but you know, it actually was not in the script, and it got added because of superstition. <laughs> Marion C. Cooper, when he had everything ready, realized that he had a 13 reel movie. That's right. I, I know. I remember this. I remember this that 13 reels was bad luck. Yeah, he thought it was bad luck. She's like, no movie of mine is going to be 13 reels. So they <laughs> a whole new special effects sequence where Kong attacks the train so they can get a 14th reel. Ironically, in the editing process, he got it down to 11. He the train attack so it was a moot point <laughs> even even i mean it's still made arguably one of the most iconic shots in that film so yes that has been imitated i mean godzilla himself also attacked a train in his debut movie very true and he attacked trains and follow-up films throughout his uh career mm -hmm. nothing as good as uh that though yeah, that is when you watch the, watch it in this film, it is fantastic. I mean, I got, I'm going to say this, and this might seem weird to a lot of people, but I really do think I would say ninety plus percent, ninety plus percent of the special effects in this movie still look good, and the dang things pushing ninety. See, as much as it pains me to say this, I got to disagree. Oh really? Um, when I saw the movie in theaters, the the jarring stop motion was a little more clear to me. And as much as it pains me to say this, I think compared to Harry House in the film, age extremely bad when it comes to stop motion. I will give you that Harry Housen did better animation. However. Harryhausen was O'Brien's student. Very true. Very true. Which is why I'm not discrediting King Kong. Huh? I'm not, I'm not discrediting King Kong. I'm just saying Harryhausen did it better. Yes. There's no denying that. I, I won't fight you on that, for sure. I mean, I've, if, I've seen 
I haven't sat down and watched all of it yet, but I've seen clips of Mighty Joe, which they worked on together. And uh, the stop motion in that is better than King Kong. It's much and more polished. I believe it's. I believe Harryhausen actually did majority of the stop motion in that movie. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm, they worked on that together. Mm-hmm. Now, I, to, and maybe maybe this is because I'm comparing it. Uh, you know, I didn't notice the, this jarring stop motion. Um, on the smaller screen, and maybe I would with Terry House and stuff. And I, yes, technology, but if we're simply going by how it's like, if it's aged well, King Kong definitely did not age as well as I think a lot of stop motion has. Possibly, but I will tell you right now, I'll take King Kong 33 over a lot of CGI laden movies any day. I of the agree. Week. I agree. Because and I I have a little line here in my notes that was from Roger Ebert. I'm gonna time, but he basically said the thing about old stop motion special effects, like you see in King Kong, is that it looks fake but feels real. Whereas CGI, if it's poorly done, I sh- I would call if I was saying if it was poorly done, looks real but feels fake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I agree with that. So I think because there's a tangibility to the special effects, even if it doesn't necessarily look real, I think for most audiences, that tangibility makes it more believable. It makes it easier to accept. It was just the same sort of argument I would make when we're ta- if we were talking about a Japanese satsu. Mm. See, okay. I, I get what you're saying, and I do agree. It looks real. It's it's on the screen. It it's it's more believable, and I agree. Plus, I, if I remember right, um, in our brains, we know when something is computer generated. Mm-hmm. So unless it's really, really, really good, when we see that image, we're going to see and say. It's computer generated, but with stop motion, suit nation, when we see it, we know it's real and it, it's it's more believable. Mm-hmm. That uh, being said, thinking of the term uncanny valley, I know that's uh, something that people talk about where it's a case of a special effect is trying so hard to be realistic, but it's not real. So the brain doesn't quite know how to process it. Because it can't quite say it's real, but it also can't quite say it's not real. Which is why it's called the Uncanny Valley. That might be it. That might be it. And it kind of freaks the brain out, from what I understand. Mm -hmm. It it could very well be that. Um, But that being said, keep in mind, I am not comparing it to CGI films. I haven't once compared it to O5. I'm simply comparing it to stop motion. Because I don't, I it stop motion and CGI are on completely different levels. So, mm-hmm. what I, I what I would compare it to is Crash of the Titans. That's to me that is the newest uh, CGI film that did it right, and it looks phenomenal. Now you also have Cue the Winged Serpents, oh. uh, and uh, Terminator and RoboCop. Both of them used it. Uh, There's actually a lot of stop motion in RoboCop. <laughs> there is. That matter. There is. 
Um, and a lot of people don't catch that. It's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a Stan Winston uh, for Terminator, mm-hmm. at the very least. And uh, he was, I guess, in a way, he was kind of like the O'Brien and Harryhausen of the 80s. Oh, definitely. Most definitely, Winston was the pioneer in animatronics and puppeteer work in the 80s and 90s. And uh, even uh, even CGI, I'd say. Um, and then ILM came around. Yeah, well, and ILM was always on the cutting edge special mm-hmm. effects. But that again, is until uh, Weta came around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Weta for sure has been giving very serious competition. Oh, uh, 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 I can't believe you you didn't say this one. Uh, Star Wars, uh, Return of the Jedi. Oh, right. stop yeah, are you no, talking about the war? The AT-18s. Oh, uh, from Empire, yes. Oh, Empire, Empire. I thought you were, uh, I thought you were stop motion monsters. Oh, uh, oh. <laughs> yes, uh, there's also a lot of stop motion in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, when I compare King Kong to that stuff, to me, King Kong looks... A lot more jittery, a lot more. Um, what's the term I'm looking for? Uh, twitchy, twitchy. Yeah, um, you can you can see whenever they miss frames, um, mm-hmm. and it's just it's not as smooth to me. Mm-hmm. So, I would argue King Kong has not aged well. That being said, I'm not saying it doesn't look realistic, and I'm not saying it looks bad. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I think what helps this movie is that there are uh, besides the special effects that elevated to the point where, honestly, it's one of only I think a small percentage of films that are truly timeless. It's the whole movie. And I said this on my show when I covered it. This movie is so good, it's kind of hurt the Eighth Wonders film career because that first movie is so dang perfect that everyone just keeps going back to that well. And when they try to get out of that well, it doesn't always work. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) If you've seen King Kong Lives. You'll understand. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it, it's it, it really is a truly timeless movie. And see, I, I think a great point to add into that would be relating it to 05. 05 is a direct remake of 33. Mm-hmm. And a very, very loving one. Yes, Jackson was very honorable in that original film. Jackson even owns props from the original that are seen in the movie. The wireframes. There, there was only two of those for Kong, and he owns one of them. Mm-hmm. And he also owns the bombs that were thrown at him. He owns those. Um, those can be seen in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and Jackson, much respect to the guy. Uh, and I think your the your statement on thirty three being timeless only can be backed up more with the fact a film in two thousand and five. Over that would be 80 years, right? 80, 70, yeah. 70, 
years. Seven years later, they make a exact uh, remake, and they don't mm-hmm. change. All they do is they elaborate on it. They mm-hmm. don't really change anything. That really shows that this film has stood the test of time. Mm-hmm. So much so, and basically every Kong movie that we've seen since then has borrowed from the original in one form or another. It just can't get away from it. I mean, we haven't had a King Kong movie since the five, so... Do you really want to go there? Yes. <laughs> yes. Legally speaking, we have not had a King Kong movie since 2005. Oh! No! Skull Island is a, is a King Kong movie! Where do we call him King Kong? King Kong movie! They count. They don't. And so what you're saying is Conga? I might grant you this just because then I can I, I can legitimately ignore, as I did on my show, the Mighty Kong, which is the worst King Kong movie ever made. <laughs> okay, so what you're saying is King Kong with King Kong supposedly in it. <laughs> so Queen Kong is also a King Kong movie. Uh, I reject Mighty I reject Queen Kong. <laughs> Konga and Konga TMT are both King Kong movies. Uh, th- th- how, how does Kong... Okay, we're going down a rabbit hole. <laughs> Let's go for it. Let's go. Let's oh, do this. You really want to go down this rabbit hole? You Let's, serious let's go. Okay. Let's go. What evidence do you have other than the name that Konga has anything to do with King Kong? Giant ape. There have been plenty of movies about killer and or giant apes. Okay. This movie based on this is how you can do it. This is how you can get her, you know, kind of talk about whether or not it's uh, or not. Did they use the novelization? Because the novelization is more or less not. Then it's not neither neither did Roberts. Neither huh? did Roberts. Roberts did not use the novelization. Then it may as well be a King Kong movie. It is a King but, Kong movie. But it, if Roberts didn't use the novelization, they don't call him King Kong. Universal's not connected to the film because Legendary <sighs> dropped them. It's because, and, it's because you... Okay, the King Kong copyright is ridiculous. You and I, right. tech own a piece of the King Kong copyright because the novel is in public domain. Okay? True. And True. all of those movies you will never see unless Criterion pulls a giant miracle out of their anus. You are not going to see a King Kong Criterion box set because all of those movies are divided up between about four different studios. It is so, insane. You've got Universal, Toho, uh, Warner. Being partially in public domain. Paramount and De Laurentiis. It's five. I think it's five. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because yeah, Warner Brothers owns the RKO library. Yeah. Yeah. RKO, so they have 33 and Son of. Toho has King Kong vs. Godzilla and King Kong Escape. Japanese yeah, version. has 76 and lives. Universal has uh, 05, and then uh, it's Legendary and Warner Brothers, honestly, well, for, uh, for Skull Island and well, GBK. 
So well, actually, Universal has King Kong versus and King Kong Escapes. Toho has the Japanese versions. Yeah, Universal that's... has, mm-hmm. and Paramount only has seventy six. I think De Laurentiis owns the distribution right to lives. I know. Like I said, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I think it's pretty simple myself. Uh, only a kaiju scholar like me can understand it. Oh. <laughs> really? Really? <laughs> yes. It's a good thing you're in the right company. <laughs> Again, Jimmy. Silence! Thanks, Jimmy. Much appreciated. But if they were to do a King Kong box set, which they have done in other regions, they would not include Skull Island and they would not include GVK. How does it feel to be wrong? <laughs> you tell me. You tell me. Oh! <laughs> Can we get back to the original movie now? Yeah, that might be a good idea. <laughs> we'll, we'll save the we'll save the Is Skull Island a, a King Kong movie for a different episode. Spoiler alert: It's not. <laughs> so, thirty-three. Um, it's timeless. That's that's where we were before we went down yep. into this this rabbit hole of craziness. Um, but I do agree. I, I do agree, and even even to this day, um, different versions of Beauty Killed the Beast are still relevant mm-hmm. in cinema. Mm-hmm. It was Beauty Killed the Beast. Mm-hmm. Now, out of curiosity, would you say that went to inspire um, the amazing female characters? that are in, like, the Alien franchise, the Halloween franchise, um, and a lot of these horror films where beauty killed the beast. Oh, okay, I see where, where, oh, what you're getting at now. I, I suppose it's possible, although in Anne's case, I don't know if she's necessarily directly responsible for... Not sure. like, directly, anyway, you know, for the death of King Kong in this... I mean, now, on the other hand, Fay Ray is the original Scream Queen. That's true. That's I'll, I'll give you that much. You got beat by Fay Ray. <laughs> Which, so, I do think she helped pave the way in that regard. And real quick, um, since we're mentioning Fay Ray, I was watching um, clips from the movie today, and it looks... I find this really interesting. The film looks like it was shot as a silent movie. Because, you know, that was the normal... Mm-hmm. Uh, Talkies were pretty new at that point. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to watch the film and see how it's... All the actors and actresses are kind of overacting because, you know, that was that was the normal thing to mm-hmm. do. And it's it's really interesting to see how they articulate their voices and articulate their acting while in this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I, it, I love that. It, it does have a very distinct style that mm-hmm. 
is very much indicative of the early talkie era at that point. Mm-hmm. And you get to see similar things in different ways in other films. Like if you watch a lot of the universal horror movies, Dracula, Frankenstein, Dracula in particular, there's almost no soundtrack in it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another one of those holdovers from the silent era. Yeah. Which, speaking of soundtrack, we need to address the importance of Kong soundtrack. Max Steiner. Oh my gosh. That this is another one of those things that this film helped to revolutionize. There hadn't been a film score like this in a movie before. And Max Steiner basically invented how films are, uh, are scored. Well, basically how films have been scored since then. He introduced it because he made the music specifically for the film. He watched the film and he wrote the music for it. They even invented a term for what he does in this movie. You don't see this quite as much anymore, but it's called Mickey Mousing. Have you ever heard that? Yes. Yeah. And the go-to example that people bring up for this movie is when we meet the native chief and he starts walking toward our protagonist. Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. these, uh, it's, um, it's like a tuba. It's like, brum, 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 brum. it's timed to every step that he takes. And it's called Mickey Mousing because that is the sort of thing that they would do in old cartoon shorts because you know they would do that instead of having sound effects. Right. Yeah, and it, I, it, that even adds, and I think we're, uh, we keep going back to this point. King Kong is timeless. And that's mm-hmm. another great point is the soundtrack kind of aspects of film have not changed since 1933's King Kong. Mm-hmm. That revolutionized it so much. And the the thing you pointed out with uh, the native chief, that scene, that's, that's the best example, I think, in that film. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it's actually kind of, when watching it, you do kind of get this feeling because of how prominent the score is. The score really helps this movie, I think, add to its dramatic side. Mm-hmm. And I think it really, really benefits it. It does. It, it does so much. People don't realize how much music can contribute to a film. Uh, it's honestly some of the best, even in good movies, some of the best scenes in cinema, if you took the music out, I would dare to say you would lose some of the impact. Mm-hmm. And I think there is something that would be lost if you, you know, muted this movie. Oh, you, yeah. It yeah. just wouldn't quite work as well. This was... Yes, it has influences from the silent era, as basically every movie Hollywood was making did at this point. But this is a sound picture. (laughs) This is a full... This does what a movie is supposed to do. It is an experience of sight and sound. 
And you need all of that to fully appreciate it and to have the full impact of what this movie is doing. And I, this really was unlike what anybody had seen at this point. And this was a massive hit. And I think it was a massive hit because and because this was made and released at the height of the Depression. People needed escapist entertainment at that point. They needed to be able to pay their, you know, their nickel, their dime or whatever, get a ticket and go in and be transported to a faraway island in the Pacific where there's a giant gorilla and dinosaur. You can get away from everything. It's wonderful. Nobody makes movies like this anymore. <laughs> right, definitely. It's it's a lost art almost, and it's kind of sad. <laughs> yes, and I described the this movie like this on my episode. Mythic, not real. I have read some pretty cockamamie and it points effed up essays that try to analyze things like Skull Island. I get it, Jimmy, not Skull Island, but the it analyzed the island in this as if it was realistic and all the. None of this place makes no sense. And I say, it doesn't matter. It's not meant to be taken realistically. This is a myth. Mm -hmm. And you have to look at it as such. But, okay, let me, let me give you kind of a counter-argument. The original Gojira in the film canonically Godzilla was a myth. What I mean by myth is the sort of story that is being told in the movie. Not necessarily that King Kong in universe is a myth. I'm talking about the style of storytelling that we that we get in. I get what you mean. Um, just just so we can uh, go into more detail, could you elaborate a little bit more, just so we can look at this from a lot more angles? Yeah, sorry about that. It's the it's the English major in me coming oh, out. Oh, you're good. You're good. I I get what you mean. I just I want to yeah. I want to dive into this. Is that this is mythic storytelling, and when you're talking about myths, they aren't necessarily meant to be realistic. They're talking about big ideas about how the world is the way it is. So you look at something like Greek mythology, and those stories exist because the ancient Greeks were trying to understand the world around them. So they, you know, they ask big questions like, well, where did the universe come from? Well, it was made by the Titans, and then the Titans got overthrown by the gods. And now the gods rule the universe, and that's, you know, there's lightning in the sky because that's Zeus throwing thunderbolts and things like that. King Kong exists in a very similar place. He has permeated American culture, Americana. King Kong is Americana. And even people who have not seen the movie, they know who King Kong is. When you, you, know, you bring up something about a big gorilla, the first thing that people think of is King Kong. Heck, there's even a pro wrestler who named himself King Kong. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, King Kong Bundy, because he was a big dude. And <laughs> the story that's being told in King Kong, the... You know, it's it's weirdly primordial. You have you know it, they call it out in this movie. 
Beauty and the Beast. It's a classic fairy tale. Now, is it a literal adaptation of that particular fairy tale? No, but it uses a lot of the motifs of it. The big beast, the you know, the the beautiful woman that infatuates the beast in one form or another. And the the even the idea of you know, the the Arab proverb, the fake Arab proverb <laughs> that you know talked about how the beast is killed by beauty. You know, all of these things, that that concept, that big idea that something as large and powerful as King Kong can be undone by something uh, as seemingly small and insignificant like a beautiful woman because he has to have it. Because that's that's the tragedy of King Kong. He dies because he has to have the beauty. So like I said, these are all really big ideas. They're very universal concepts. And you you see them, you said it, you know, this sort of stuff appears stories everywhere. And the I don't know if you've ever heard of Joseph Campbell, Hero with a Thousand Faces. Heard of him? Not, uh, not really done much in uh, info. Okay. Well, he was an anthropologist, and he wrote a book called the Hero with a Thousand Faces. Actually, one of the most influential books when it comes to storytelling, of really about the last hundred years. Well, like I said, it was an anthropology book, but he talked about these universal concepts that appear in myth, and they're powerful because they keep showing up everywhere. Doesn't matter the time or culture. And King Kong definitely plays around with concepts like that. And I and like I said, I, that is why this movie, this story, is so good, and why it still resonates today, and why it keeps getting remade. <laughs> They keep going back to this story because it's just that good. Mm-hmm. And I, I will say, you know, a lot of people try to decipher um, films and, like, analyze them. And you mentioned this, and I, I just kind of want to reiterate here. King Kong doesn't scream politically charged to me. It doesn't. It was never um, meant but there have been I have I've read those essays. <laughs> I mean, I've even read ones where like it's alien versus predator and like it's about legal immigration or something. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um there's some pretty wild anal- uh analysts out there. But yeah, and then some of them get themselves into a wee bit of trouble, like those guys who were on Chaozu who started talking about what was it? Uh, Ultraman was racist or something? Or, Ultra, uh, Ultra Seven is xenophobic. Yeah, <laughs> they put that out there, and the the entire kaiju community is just saying what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> now I will say, I do believe there was some political nature in the aspect of taking Kong from his home. Yes. I, I, I think that that there is the most political thing in the film. Yes, the uh, you're thinking of idea, I believe, this idea of these, we'll say, civilized people going and taking something from, 
you know, uh, some sort of wild place, whether that be, say, Africa or an island, and then taking that, whatever it is, and taking it back to their home and exploiting it. Mm-hmm. I've read those essays. There have been people who have flat out interpreted this movie, particularly King Kong, as being symbolic of slavery. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that you can't read that uh, read into that. There are things that you can latch onto that would support that thesis. In particular, things like you know, Kong in, in this film it has black fur. And they put him in chains and put him on display. And the it looks. Some people have said that it looks like a like a crossbeam, as in like Jesus on the cross, that sort of a thing, which has not been replicated in any other. And but it also looks similar to how slaves would have been displayed when they were being sold. Mm-hmm. So there are things to note about that, and related to that. This movie also created a, a something that has been replicated in basically every Kong movie. He breaks those chains of control, whether they be literal chains or something else. You know, say, you know, King Kong escapes. It wasn't chains, but he did reject Doctor Who's mind control device. Because mm-hmm. he would not be controlled. So they are out there. Yeah. And that's. Speaking of that, let me ask you this, since we're on the topic of racism, there have been accusations of racism. What do you think of those, or do I need to explain a little bit? Yeah, so I've heard the, the accusations of Kong being, the movie being racist. Um, I think, I don't think racism is the right term. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely some not politically correct um, stereotypes in this movie. Yes. Um, and I'm not going to deny that. But... It's a product I, of its time, for sure. Exactly, exactly. When looking at this film, we're, I, I, I think we're really diving into the impact and the, the importance of the film. And the reason for that is it's historic. Mm-hmm. History's not perfect. When it comes to being politically correct. Mm-hmm. And I think King Kong is a brilliant example of that. The character of Charlie. I, I, I love Charlie. Charlie's honestly one of my favorite characters. Um, Charlie is really cool. In fact, I think honestly Charlie was probably the best part of, of the sequel. I think he's actually I very sequel. Son of Kong, he's amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's unfortunate that that actor doesn't get credited, I don't think, in this movie. Correct. And it's, in, yeah, it's, in 33. He does get credited, but they don't even call him Charlie. They call uh, He's credited as Chinese cook, mm-hmm. which is sad because they call him Charlie. He has a name. Right. And I, and, I think that's, that's one of those examples of them not being correct. Like, that, that's uncalled for. You know, he has a name, like you said. Mm-hmm. Although uh, I, do, I do tend to interpret Charlie's story through a fairly positive lens. I like to think of Charlie as being this Chinese immigrant, came to New York City, trying to make his way in the world, doesn't know great English, 
but he's really good at cooking. It's the depression. He needed a job. So he took a job on this boat. I mean, that would, I honestly, that I would love, I, I don't know. I, I don't think they've really established much of a backstory, but I, that's honestly what I would want. I think that's a great backstory. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, though, the way I think they show him in the movie does stereotype him. Mm-hmm. And I don't agree with the stereotype, but uh, to to reiterate and just establish this is a thing of history. Yes. Like, Gone with the Wind. Uh, oh. <laughs> um, let's, let's see, what's, what's another... Uh, books. You know, famous books. Um, Tom Sawyer, uh, Huck Finn. Tom Sawyer, uh, Huck Finn. All of these. Now, granted, those were written deliberately like that. Mm-hmm, Not were. because of stereotypes. Those those meant to be a jab at at the uh, establishment. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the most political we've gotten on the podcast. <laughs> this is what happens when you bring the show. We do deep dives like this. I mean, the tagline for my podcast is seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. That's this is what we do. But you know, it's funny that we're talking about that. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we have Noble Johnson, the actor who plays the native chief, and he does get credited. That's true. I mean, you want to talk about forward thinking? That was unheard of. Nobody would do. Nobody would do that. And true. they put his name right there in the credits, beginning of the movie. Noble Johnson as native chief, and that was huge. That was a huge thing. Yeah. And for what I understand, I think Noble Johnson was very happy to be in this movie and play that character. I mean, look at how he plays this native chief. I don't think the native chief is necessarily played negatively. He's not even really an antagonist. He's he seems like a very strong character. I mean, Noble Johnson brings uh, you know, this you know, this uh, powerful energy to this character. You do not screw with this guy. If he and does even- uh, even how they show, like how he's shown on camera, you know the way the way they use the camera, it's kind of kind of angled up at him, and our crew with denim and all that, they're the camera's pointed more down at them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's at a higher uh, level, and. That mm-hmm. entire sequence is made to give him power, to show mm-hmm. his might, to show this isn't somebody you mess with. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, until King Kong breaks out, the native chief was always. And I might, because isn't he there for whenever he breaks out? I'm trying to remember. I. Um, I think you do see him when Kong breaks out, but you know, it's chaos at that point. I know he comes back in the sequel. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but that, yeah. that's the only sequence where he's not shown with power. Mm-hmm. Every other shot, the camera's always angled up at him. You know, the music is going to his footsteps. Mm-hmm. They always made sure to give him power, which mm-hmm. is great. I love yeah. that. 
yeah, whether it's physical power or even bargaining power. I mean, you actually, I mean, he could have just been violent and savage and just said, like, you give us golden woman, yeah, spear, and then just take Anne. No, what does he do? He, he tries to bargain. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. He says, here, we'll give you six of our women for the golden woman. We don't see bronze around here. Ooh, <laughs> monkey God will be happy. So, <laughs> you know, and they they tell him no, and then he he waits until nightfall, and because his because his warriors read the script, they knew exactly where Anna was. <laughs> they were able to sneak up on her and take her. I will admit that's one of the as much as I love this script. I, I know Ray Bradbury said because Ray Bradbury adored this movie, and he actually said this is the this movie has the perfect script. Not quite, Mister Bradbury, but and that's one of them is the fact that they just they were just they knew exactly where Anne was. Like, oh, there she is! It's their plan couldn't have worked <laughs> that smoothly mm-hmm. if they didn't know where she was. Right, but you know so. Yeah, he's he is a powerful character. He's physically imposing. He's you know he and he's clever and apparently something of a strategist. So mm-hmm. do not trifle with this guy. Yeah, and I think kind of sum up this this part. I think King Kong, while not politically correct, was a step in the right direction mm-hmm. for future films. That a mm-hmm. lot of people, I think, almost forget or choose to ignore um, to harp on the bad stuff. When mm-hmm. what what we brought up here is a huge moment in cinema history. Mm-hmm. And uh, King Kong is also a snapshot in another because this movie got made before the Hayes Code. Mm-hmm. So it got away with things that nobody after about 19- 19th whenever think about trying to get away with in fact when the movie got re-released i think it was in 19 i want to say 39 i believe so 39 or 37 one of the two had to edit down Mm -hmm. those parts that they edited out were lost for decades and people thought that they were it was gone forever and then there's this wonderful story if you really want to do the research on it where they found an uncut uh, you know, version of the movie lying in a... You know, uh, yeah, somewhere in Europe, I think. And then they got their mitts on it, and then they restored the full movie, I believe, in the late 60s, I think? I believe so. Because yeah. I know they they constantly... Because the, the, the rules and regulations were getting stricter and stricter. So they kept chopping that film up, if I recall. So yes. by 52, it was not the film they grew up on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And finally found the parts that had been lost, and then they restored the film. And that's what we're able to watch now. And I am very grateful, but it's interesting to see just how much sensibilities changed. Before I understand, the things that got cut were kind of controversial when they first came out anyway. Like mm-hmm. the scene when Kong is picking at Anne's clothes and then kind of tickling her a little bit. And I read some effed up essays that talked about that one, but that apparently 
some people found that a little shocking. And when the Hayes Code got put in, they said, you can't have that part anymore. Even though Mary C. Cooper and O'Brien both said it wasn't meant to be hypersexualized and risque. It was supposed to be funny. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to be Kong being curious about this thing that he has. And, you know, it's like a little kid with a doll, you know? That's right. what it was supposed to be. But some people got a little uppity about it. <laughs> and then, uh, since we're on that subject, we should talk about a scene that people thought got cut from the movie, but nobody's been able to. <laughs> uh, here we go. Here we go. Uh, the I hate the fact Cooper burned that. I hate that. Nobody's 100% sure if it actually ever existed. There's well, evidence say it did. It's in the script. It's in the novelization. Isn't there storyboards yeah. and like, there storyboards like photos? And, yeah, and there's some what look like set photos. But where it gets confusing is there are people who claim that when they saw the very earliest screenings of the movie, that the spider pit sequence was in it, and it was supposedly so frightening that when, uh, you know, that it only got shown in those first couple of showings and then it was removed. Correct. And if I remember right, it was so frightening that that's what they could only talk about after that scene. Yeah. Um, and it took, it took away from the rest of the film. Yeah, and although another a variation on that story says that Cooper had it removed before the film was released because he realized that if it stayed in, people would only talk about that sequence and they wouldn't talk about the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. But and then the other the part of the that story then continues by saying regardless why or when it was removed, story has it that he burned the negatives that right. had. The, that scene in it and it's been lost so it's kind of become almost like a cinematic holy grail thing that they might somehow find it stashed away in i don't know someone's trash can and uh, you know in a theater in in the middle of europe or something and they'll finally find it and there are places where you can see where it was supposed to be like where there are scenes when the sailors are running after the the Brontosaurus. Uh, yeah. After you know, you see it comes after them. You'll see that uh, they're constantly looking back, and the uh, the idea. Well, no, that's a different thing that was uh, that was cut. That was because there was supposed to be a Triceratops there. I'm getting getting everything mixed up. But I have to say, I find it a, considering how nasty that been. When uh, after the famous scene where Kong shakes the log and all of the sailors fall off, I'm amazed anybody would have survived that fall. <laughs> but uh, but also I think Cooper cut it because he said it met, it messed with the flow of the movie. And I will say this for sure: this movie has some of the most perfect pacing you'll ever see in a movie. I'm just saying, especially after they get to Skull Island. You know, Skull Island to the island and Kong takes Anne. It is just it's pretty it's breakneck, but it's perfectly paced breakneck speed after that. And you thought that would mess it up. However, all of that to say, the scene does now exist sort of. 
because Peter Jackson and the guys at Weta, because they are such nerds, <laughs> decided to recreate the scene using the same sort of special effects that would have been used to make it in the 30s. <laughs> and you can now view that as a special feature on the Blu-ray. Now, and, and then also Jackson made his own little version of that's very, very disturbing and disgusting <laughs> for the 05 version. That's true. <laughs> um, now, there is more to it, and I'll kind of dive in, into it here. Now, Willis O'Brien did a lot of movies. He also did a little 1957 movie called The Black Scorpion. Mm-hmm. And in that, they go under the earth, into a cavern where there's a lot of scorpions and a lot of weird creatures. The belief and theory is those were the maquettes that were used for the spider pit sequence. Mm -hmm. And O'Brien kept them and used them in Black Scorpion. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know, is, has there been any proof to confirm that? 100% true or I think of anything off the top of my head but that is story mm -hmm. which adds to the mystique of the spider pit and so if that is legitimate then whatever that spider pit sequence was must have been some of the most weird and outlandish designs for monsters in that movie that would have definitely been a hard left turn from the you, you see one of them in the movie it still managed mm -hmm. to make cut the, uh, the uh, proto skull crawler that's true that's true <laughs> the two legged lizard that tries to go after Jack and he, uh, he cuts the vine and it falls back down yeah, in the script that two legged lizard was in the spider pit but then it ran away and climbed up the and climbed up the canyon, and then it tries to go after Jack. Mm -hmm. So, I I like I would love to see the Spider Pit sequence. That being said, I feel like it'd be too jarring for the film. I would agree, which is why Jackson made sure that he could justify its inclusion in the O five version. An important sure that there was an important plot point that happened there because he loved the spider pit sequence so much that he wanted to make sure that he could include it. Mm -hmm. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but Jackson also denied uh, Warner the okay to put it in the film because if I remember right, Warner Brothers commissioned what up and Jackson to make that scene, and they were going to put it in the film as a part of the original. Mm. And if I remember right, Jackson flat out said, if you do this, I will not make it. That sounds like a very Jackson thing to do. I, I don't think he would want to. I, In his mind, I think Kong 33 basically is a perfect movie. <laughs> in, I mean, he made that remake, but it was more like he made his remake as a tribute to that movie that he loved so much. and. I don't think he would want 
even as proud as he probably is of his recreation of the spider pit sequence, I don't think he would want it put into the movie. Mm-hmm. For him, it would be disrespectful. Mm-hmm. And we, that that's that really adds to the. Uh, I think I think that adds to the evidence that Jackson respects the film so highly, which is I which I I think really shows in O five and leads me to prefer O five over thirty three. You know what? I'm okay with that. I I'm happy we can we can agree to disagree. <laughs> oh, I'm happy. I'm I am genuinely happy that and okay with you preferring 05 to 33 now and i think i it's evident through this episode where it's when i say that i don't discredit what it's done 33 inspired spielberg jackson lucas super raya um and tons and tons of people tons harryhausen harryhausen um, one of my favorite stories of any duo in the filmmaking business is the story of Ray Bradbury and Ray Harryhausen oh. when they went to see King Kong in 1933. Yes. At the Chinese Theater in oh. uh, L.A. Yes. Uh, I've seen that interview. It's a wonderful story. And... Yeah, Bradbury was a wonderful, wonderful man. <laughs> and I forever will hold what they agreed on in my heart to agree to grow old together, but never grow up. Yes. That is my goal in life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I run a podcast about men in rubber suits. Oh, <laughs> uh, did you just break character? Uh, no, because that's what these movies are. <laughs> character. What are you talking about? What is this crazy talk? What? What? Is, is, I, I, are you on drugs? I. What? Yeah, it's it's a little late. I apologize. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, but yeah, it, I. I what Bradbury and Harryhausen were really big on when, especially when they made that statement, is not losing that childlike wonder. Because let's be honest, that's something that if you don't cultivate it when you reach adulthood, and this is something I have a feeling if you haven't experienced it already, you will soon experience it. If you don't cultivate it as an adult, you'll lose it. And then you will grow into a cynical, even bitter old man. Well, it's a tragedy. I, I have noticed, so I am learning about film right now. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, some of the best school I've ever been in. I, I, every day I go, I, I'm almost on the urge of crying. <laughs> uh, I think I have an obsession with it. Um, but I do look at film differently. Like, I, I criticize King of the Monsters. I fully acknowledge it's not a good film. 
not well made that is um but that being said i i i i i i think that's where kind of going at um kind of losing that wonder but i think what keeps me in check is i watch a ton of 1960s japanese giant monster <laughs> movies <laughs> i will forever say and i will defend Ghidorah the threaded monster it's one of the best Godzilla films ever made <laughs> uh, i will forever defend terror of mecha Godzilla. oh I, you and me both <laughs> i i adore those films and nothing will make me ever look at them outside of gold nothing and that is a promise I've made to myself to never look at the films that I grew up on as anything less than what they are. And I, I think Bradbury and Harry Hassan had that with King Kong. And I think I have that with a lot of these Showa Godzilla films. Yeah. And, I, anybody, if they're honest, they can point to something from their childhood, something like. A, a King Kong, the you know for you Showa Godzilla films, something that inspired that wonder in them, and they hold on to it. Some people call it nostalgia, and they criticize it a little bit. And I can understand that if you get lost in it, then it can become detrimental. But you still shouldn't lose that wonder. It, people who have. They're very sad, and they make me sad, you know, because they can't get past certain things, right? Which, like, uh, you know, uh, to kind of go back to King of the Monsters for a second, I criticize that movie. That being said, that film is a ball to watch. It's fun. Mm -hmm. It's you know, it's got some really memorable stuff. Yeah, it's poorly made, but it's fun. And I can understand where people like Michael uh, or you or other people like the film. Because I do, like I said last episode, as much as I hate on the film, I did see it multiple times in theaters. Mm -hmm. I do own multiple copies of it. I will not sit here and lie to you. I did tear up. A tear did fall from my eye when Godzilla came out of the ocean um, during the rebirth sequence. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. It's got some moments that I know younger me would have freaked out over. Mm -hmm. um, I know I, I had to hold my excitement back because of you know, I, I was about to jump out of my chair cheering whenever the rebirth, uh, re rebirth scene happened. Now, I will also say, I think it's because of the music. Mm -hmm. You know, I show a Godzilla. What is one of the staples of show a Godzilla? It's the Kube. Mm -hmm. Sato is amazing. Don't get me wrong. But mm -hmm. it's the He's he's a staple of the franchise. Da 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 da. You know, and hearing that 
in the theater on the big screen with big loudspeakers was something I know younger me would have screamed over. <laughs> Did you get to see the King of the Monsters? I know this is tangent but i don't care did you get to see king of the monsters at g fest i did not um but i did get to see it in screen x okay i was just wondering because honestly because i ended up i think i saw king of the monsters at least three times and one of those screenings was at g fest and g fest was by far the best screening of it Mm -hmm. because there was that fan energy to it and people they we all as a group watching that movie gave ourselves permission to do the very things that you were talking about to the to get excited to cheer to you know call to the movie you know throw jokes at the movie even at points i i for those of you who are at g fest if you were uh, at that screen that's a lot of after the oxygen destroyer went off, that was me. <laughs> yeah, don't uh, ask me, bro. But <laughs> I, I remember hearing a story where when uh, Mark said he was an alcoholic, like there was a group of people that like laughing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the weird things happen at G Fest movie screenings, but. But again, it, that's one of the things that is great about, you know, to kind of go back a little bit to the discussion, that's one of the things that places like uh, places and events like G-Fest do is that it allows you to, to be that kid again, to have that wonder, to have the permission to be excited over, you know, honestly, something that a lot of people would think is silly. Yeah, and... Actually, I, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, in, a, in a group chat that we're both in, um, we were talking about filmmaking a bit, and then I, I popped the question, why, why is there so many Godzilla fans that filmmaking is something they want to do, or something they have done, or have studied? And one of the responses was cult cinema fans often appreciate it for what it is and not what it could be and i i think you know king kong yes it's a masterpiece but it's it's an acquired taste to an extent um you know it's not a drama it's it's an adventure film yeah um you know godzilla movies giant monster movies in general science fiction um, I think a lot of the quote-unquote cult fans of, of this, these genres and these films follow what Ray uh, Bradbury and Ray Harryhausen said to grow uh, old but never grow up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know if you've heard me, but like the, the 1984 film The Adventures of Buckaroo Bonds, I crossed the dimension. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite films. I, I will say that is one of a few select films I would say is perfect. That's not a serious film, you know. Um, 
it, it's it's balls to the walls crazy. Mm-hmm. There's a character named John Big Boote. <laughs> like like the it's not highbrow art. Like it's not. <laughs> but there's something about it that brings the childish nature out of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when we watched Terror of Mechagodzilla and Kaiju Quarantine, when I watched it um, in preparation for Kaiju Weekly, the the shot where Godzilla and Titan, it, both shots, um, where Godzilla and Titanosaurus are fighting when it's lower angle, um, the first time when Godzilla appears, and the second time when they're off from the countryside, um, and they do those uh, truck uh, truck shots, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the low angle truck shots. I get goosebumps, and I get on the verge of crying every time. As you, I, I, I remember as as that four year old kid watching my aunt's VHS. I remember watching that, and I remember finishing the movie and wanting to see more. And <laughs> it's. It it brings you back, and like you said, call it call it nostalgia, you know, whatever whatever you want to call it. But you know, we made a joke before the uh, recording um, about how you know maybe you went back in time and saw it in 1933, um, <laughs> King Kong. But I think, in a sense, you do go back in time with these movies. You do. Um, I think uh, whether it's back to the time at which it was made, the time at which it takes place, or back in time to when you first saw it. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee you that's what uh, Mr. Bradbury and Mr. Harry Housen, uh, that's what they did every time they saw the King Kong. Mm-hmm. They would go back in time to that, that night in 1933 at the Chinese theater. Um, in LA, mm-hmm. where they saw and fell in love with cinema, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that is that, my friend, is the power. It can, it can change people's lives. I, not every story does, and not every story does that to every person sees it or reads it. But for those for whom it does, it's it's a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, you know, I'm a creative writer. Very, I really do, because it's very possible, as we've seen talking about King Kong tonight. It's very possible that the stories that storytellers tell will outlive them. Oh yeah. I mean, I don't know if I know Marion C. Cooper because you know he was a flamboyant showman. Said when he you know when he was working on King Kong, say I'm going to make the greatest adventure movie ever made. I don't know if he quite realized that he was making one of the most important and influential movies ever. Not just in American cinema, but in world cinema. Mm-hmm. You know, 
we we've gone this entire time, mm-hmm. and we've not once mentioned the Empire State Building. I know. You know that it's it's one of those things. It's just kind of a given that in the X fight, arguably mm-hmm. one of the first, if not the first, kaiju fight ever on screen. <laughs> I just I find it really interesting how we can go. What it's been. Two hours, almost. <laughs> yeah, almost two hours since we started this recording. And actually, we started this recording two hours and seven minutes ago. Mm-hmm. And we have not once had to rely on the dinosaur fight or the Empire State Building as topics. That shows how influential this film is. The two, arguably the two most, you know, famous scenes from the film, it's taken us two hours to even acknowledge. I know. You could do a whole series of podcast episodes on this film alone. Mm -hmm. Just going over everything in it. That's how important it is. But you're right. The, The most iconic scenes. We just now got to them. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I forgot they existed until right now. <laughs> They've crossed my mind a few times because I'm like, we should probably talk about certain things, but we're having too much fun talking about other things related to this movie. <laughs> yes, Jimmy, you would have reminded us. Funny thing, <laughs> I kind of forgot you were here for a little bit. Just saying, you've been remarkably quiet. Yeah, I was, whenever we were talking earlier, I was like, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy hasn't really talked a lot about his, his thoughts on all this. I guess he's a man of few words, right? He is. And what was that again, Jimmy? Oh, okay. It's not Space Kong. So you have a little talk about, yeah, I forgot because your full moniker is Jimmy from NASA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I gotcha, Jimmy. <laughs> Uh, but I guess because we are hitting two hours. Yes, Nathan, go Itching ahead and guess episode ever. <laughs> actually, I don't know. That's actually a good question. Um, Nathan, what's your thoughts on either of those scenes? Because we do need to talk about them because yeah, this would not be this would not be King Kong thirty three without them. Yes. I mean, it's hard to come up with anything about those scenes that hasn't been said already. The The T-Rex fight is incredible. And yes, Jimmy, I know it's technically not labeled a T-Rex. It's a meat eater or whatever. I've read the Wikizoa article, seen the video, got it. But it's, that right there is just, that scene alone is a work of art. The you look at that and you see the craft of what O'Brien was doing. Mm-hmm. I think that oh, what was it? It took an inordinate amount of time. That scene alone for him was to that, was that three months, it was like three or four months that he worked on that scene alone, and meticulously animating everything. And I don't even know if that was storyboarded or anything. He might have come up with the choreography himself. And you can definitely see it. He had a background in wrestling and boxing. 
which you can definitely <laughs> tell is Kong boxes that, uh, you know, that, you know, that, di- you know, that T-Rex, whatever you want to call it. He boxes that thing. <laughs> and it, it ends with basically Kong's finishing move. He breaks that thing's jaw and that comes back in several movies. He did it to Porcosaurus, man. <laughs> Poor Goro. Yeah, let me tell you, the, the, he's still a little bit salty about it. <laughs> <laughs> we have to keep those two separated, but uh, like a lot of monsters actually on the island. But yeah, and and I know if you pay enough attention and you pause the movie at the right frames, you can you know you can see some imperfections in it. Like you can actually see a metal rod. It you, you blink and you miss. I mean, literally blink. You miss it, but you can see a metal rod that it that O'Brien used to prop up the dinosaur model when he was doing the the flip. But I, the fact that he was even able to do it is astonishing. Right. I I can't I, I marvel at that scene every time I see. It. I really do. And like I said, it's arguably the first kaiju fight. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, it really depends on your definition of kaiju, but but what? It really depends on your definition of kaiju, but... Hey, Travis! (laughs) (laughs) But yes, it's at least the prototype for what we would get later. Oh, definitely. What are your thoughts on it? Well, I mean, without it, I would have never seen the movie. Well, it would have taken a lot longer. That is true. So we did kind of mention it earlier. Uh, yeah, but that was a publicity still, so it wasn't it wasn't the exact same. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a big monkey fighting a big lizard. <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> and I feel like we're going to see one of those soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's. I I was watching it. I was watching the clip today on it, and. I, I was really surprised by how well they were able to blend Fay Ray into the fight. Um, yes. Really well done. And honestly, I'd say that that scene has the best stop motion in most of the film. Oh, yeah. It's definitely the money shot, for mm-hmm. sure. Verbally speaking. You can tell um, that a care went into that. It's the centerpiece of the movie. Mm-hmm. And isn't it almost like in the middle part of the film? Yeah, that's why I say it's the centerpiece. It basically is the middle. Yeah, it's just that that's easily one of the best executed mini fights in any monster movie, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, I say mini because it's not supposed to be the central focus. No. Um, but it's for how long it is on in the film and for what it does it it's long lasting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, also to imagine that initially it's going to be a komodo dragon fighting a gorilla i know that is so weird and, I, and they didn't do that oh my god well, for those who don't know before o cooper discovered o'brien he was literally going to do the special effects by bringing in an actual Komodo dragon, the largest lizard 
in the world other than the inhabitants of Monster Island, of course. But yeah, the, the largest lizard in the world and was going to have it fight a guy in a gorilla costume. That would have been awful. <laughs> it probably would have, but given Cooper's background for you know going... I mean, Carl Denham in this movie is basically Marion C. Cooper. He would, yeah. He would be the guy who would go to Africa, film uh, and film a lion and tell it to look pleasant. I mean... <laughs> That was that was who he was. So the fact that he was like, "Oh, let's go get a real Komodo dragon, have a fight guy in a gorilla costume, would be amazing." I'm, I'm not surprised at all. <laughs> but uh, it, it's so it's so interesting to see it go from concept to the final finalized. I know. Uh, uh, it it would have been wrong. Any other way, any other way it would have been wrong. It really would have. It would have. And then, yeah, as for the Empire State Building, I mean, that's the scene everybody knows. Even if you've never seen the movie, you know that scene. It's an icon for a reason. <laughs> it is. It's an incredibly good landmark. And the Empire State Building had just been built at that point. Mm-hmm. It was new. The, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it was, it, it just made sense to use it at that point. And it was the tallest building in the world at that point. So why not? The Unkong mm-hmm. have seen it as being the mountain from the island. He's just climbing it to get away from everybody. Yeah. And, and I. That that's another scene I think that's really well paced. Like mm-hmm. like you mentioned earlier, the pacing in this movie is amazing, and I mm-hmm. think that is a testament to it. Is mm-hmm. you and know I don't have I what? No, go for it. Go for it. You uh, I don't. I was going to say I don't remember any music being in that that scene. Um. Final part, yeah. And I—that's so interesting because most of that sequence is just the planes and the sounds of the engine mm-hmm. hitting Kong, mm-hmm. and it, it's that's such an interesting decision that you know you'd think it's the most dramatic part they would they would include music, mm-hmm. but for most of the sequence, it's just the the planes. And I, I think that's a very interesting uh, creative decision that they made to have it focus on the planes and Kong and nothing else, not the, the dramatic part of just the... Mm-hmm. It might have also been because movie. Cooper and Shodzak were playing the pilots. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> they said, because the, I know Cooper said this is like, well, we made the SO should be the ones who kill him <laughs> and they were uh, i know cooper for sure was one veteran yeah he was a pilot, so made sense yeah and do you go on to what you were going to ask or say i was going to ask if you have ever been to the empire state building i have not that is one of the buildings that i want to 
Isn't there a Kong up there? If I remember right. Isn't there? Oh, they have put an inflatable Kong at the top of it for promotional purposes now and then. But they do sell, at least when I was there, they did sell King Kong-themed memorabilia in their gift shop because they know that people know that movie. Mm-hmm. Now, from that movie. You know why they can do a gorilla on the Empire State Building? Why? Because it's not King Kong. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> it goes, it, it always comes to a complete circle with me. Uh, obviously. But yes. And also, another fun little fact King Kong wouldn't have his famous perch if not for my home state. Really? Yes. I'm from Indiana, and uh, uh, in the early 20th century, one of the key things that was mined in Indiana was limestone. Limestone is a key component of the foundation of the Empire State Building. Are you saying you want me to thank you to helping make... (laughs) me? Because I didn't mine any of that limestone. Just thank my state. Will do. Thank you, Indiana. Thank you to our listeners in Indiana. So there you go. I learned a lot. <laughs> I guess it seems like we're nearing the end of our discussion. Mm-hmm. Overall. Point I mean, has kept up with us. Hot dang. We must, uh, we must have had a good talk two and a half hours about uh, talking about a giant monkey. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but to wrap up our conversation about a big monkey, overall, I-, I think it's pretty obvious, but Nathan, what's your thoughts on the 1933 classic? Uh, it- it's exactly that. It's a classic. It's mu- it is required viewing, I would say. If you fancy yourself a cinephile, a lover of movies, whatever, a lover of pop culture, you have to watch this. You need to watch this movie at least once in your life. There are only a handful of movies that I would say, you know, like, is there, there's even a book, you know, what was it like to watch before you die? This has to be at the top of the list. Or at least close to it. So what you're saying is the guy I told you about at the beginning of this episode is wrong, 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 wrong. Yes, and add a few more wrongs on there too. So wrong, 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 wrong. And then to punctuate it, I will impersonate Lex Luthor. But I I think I think I'm just going to have to say Nathan hammered at home. This is a classic. Um, it's a must-watch for anybody. It's, it's a great movie. Um, even though I prefer 2005, you, can't, you cannot go wrong with 33. Mm-hmm. It is pure gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's no looking at it any other way. It's pure mm-hmm. gold. Mm-hmm. It's one of the purest pieces of cinema I've ever seen. And I mean that. Even Martin Scorsese shouldn't argue with me about that. 
I, I think he would probably agree. <laughs> but I think now has time. the time has come for Nathan to execute what he's best at, <laughs> which is shameless plugs. <laughs> Indeed. I have said many a time, shameless self-promotion is one of my spiritual gifts. <laughs> so, if you enjoyed this wonderful little discussion, I have covered this movie on my show, The Monster Island Film Vault. Find us on all of your favorite podcatchers, because we're on all of the things. We're also on YouTube, and you can follow us on the social medias at The Monsterisla One. And I would be remiss, I have other related po- Twitters that I have to plug as per my contractual obligations. I'm getting to it. One of which is for my intrepid producer, Nasa. Follow at Nasa Jimmy. And then there's also my Orwellian overlords, the Monster Island Board of Directors, whom you can follow at Monster Isla BOD because apparently they love their bods. And then there's also, as strange as this may sound, my pseudo sister, Clone, who is also a magical girl superheroine that exists. You can follow her on Twitter at CrystalLadyJess1. And as also, as I mentioned, oh, I should also mention the MonsterIslandFilmFault.com. And we're on uh, Facebook and the Instagram. And as I mentioned, I'm also a creative writer and, uh, and an author. And you can check out my not podcasting kaiju-related stuff on my author website, NathanJSMarchand.com. Because, yes, I had to use my middle initials, and yes, I have two, because NathanMarchand.com was already taken. I'm going to find that guy who has that domain, and I might feed him to one of those dinosaurs on the island. <laughs> you can also follow my professional Twitter at NathanMarchan7, and you can find my professional Facebook page, which is called The Worlds of Nathan Marchand. I believe that's everything. <laughs> I have a lot. <laughs> Thank you so much for um, giving all that a plug. And as always, that stuff can be found in the description below. So please check them out. Hit that follow button. Like that Facebook page. Subscribe to them on YouTube. Do all of it. Check them out. A lot mm-hmm. of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. I should also mention that I do have a new book that just got published by Wild Hunt Press. I co-wrote it with my friends Nick Hayden and Aaron Brosman. It's called Zorzom and the God Who which is a sword and sorcery story in the vein of Conan the Barbarian, but I dare say. All right. than Conan. (laughs) I said. All right. Interesting. (laughs) Um, But thank you so much, Nathan, for being on. I do appreciate it. Um, This was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. You Um, got to stuff. Oh, yeah, I do. I do. Uh, yeah. Because you have trademark plugs and sign-offs that are like, I need that. I, I, can't, I can't have my Kaiju Converse without these. Oh, uh, yeah, I should probably. 
plugging myself here. So, hi, I'm Elijah. You have been listening to me partially talk for the last two hours. Um, if you haven't uh, heard of me, well, um, I'm not alone. Um, but <laughs> I was going to say they are, you poor deprived child. You haven't heard of Elijah. <laughs> yes. I, uh, I am Elijah, I think. Pretty sure. <laughs> um, I don't know anymore. I, I just... You're either tired or having an existential... Yeah, nine times out of ten. Um, but you can find me on the YouTube at ET13Productions or on the Twitter at ET13Productions. Uh, so I have an Instagram that I'm slowly getting back into using, um, but I haven't yet. Um, that is also at ET13Productions. You can also follow my personal Twitter for whatever is going on in my head. Um, that's why it's called the uh, the mind of one Elijah Thomas because it's it's what's going on in my mind, and I'm only one of many Elijah Thomases in this world. Um, Do you know there's actually a website that actually tell people there are with your name. I'm horrified at that. That <laughs> um, I, I am one of what was it like thirteen? I think Nathan Marchand's in the United States. That's unique. Hmm. There's like there was a senator with Elijah Thomas. There's a basketball player. Um, I'm not that unique. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you can follow that if you want to at e. Thomas, 1975, um, capital E, capital T, lowercase H-O-M-A-S, 1975. But now that I'm done plugging myself, also, please check out Kaiju Ramen Magazine. It is a up-and-coming indie magazine uh, that covers kaiju and tokusatsu-related subjects. Its next issue will be coming out in April, um, so definitely check that out. Um, in issue one, I have a small part in issue one, and I might be in issue two. You might have to buy the magazine to check it out. Ooh. That was Travis. If you're listening, I should be paid for my promotion. <laughs> I agree with this plan. <laughs> Uh, but please, since you are listening to Kaiju Conversation, it wouldn't be without having our sign-off. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. That boosts our ratings and helps us get recommended to more people just like you. If you don't have an Apple device, which I don't blame you, I don't, you can tweet us and follow us at K-A-I-J-U underscore C-O-N-V-E-R-S. If you don't have either of the, uh, if you don't have an Apple device or if you don't have Twitter, don't blame you, it can be pretty bad sometimes. <laughs> you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and contact us through those means. If you're like me before podcasting, congrats and I envy you. If you don't have any social media, you can email us at 
kaijuconversation at gmail.com. All lowercase, all one word. You know the drill. Mm-hmm. And for your reviews, or if you have a question, send it to us. We'll always read it on air for everybody to hear. We also have merchandise on Teespring. Eventually, I know I keep saying it, eventually we'll have artwork that looks good and nice, <laughs> nice uh, shirts. But I'm not the best at graphic design, and the artist I have in mind is pretty busy. So, eventually, just not right now. Hey, or, I know people. That's good to know. <laughs> I can help you. That's great to know. Um, or, if you'd like to chat with me one-on-one, uh, hear opinions from other people of different subjects related to Tokusatsu, and even possibly be on a podcast episode, join our Discord server, where you can talk to me and other people like-minded about the things you love. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell so you can be notified anytime we upload. Uh, we do have a brand new series out called Toku Fandom Tales. It is a monthly uh, series where I will interview one person from our Discord server on how they got into Tokusatsu, what they like about Tokusatsu, and their thoughts on Tokusatsu in general. So far, we only have one episode out, but I am planning to do more and more to showcase the amazing community we have on this server, and hopefully, in the future, uh, let it grow so it can represent more of our awesome community that is the kaiju community. Someone was inspired by our friend Michael. Yes, but see, unlike Michael, mine's going to be constant. <laughs> Shots. Shots fired! I'm definitely getting blocked for that one. <laughs> You are canceled. <laughs> oh no, I gotta get to I gotta talk to Kaiju Kim before he does. <laughs> uh, but yeah, our YouTube channel will have exclusives on there, and I think it's a lot of fun. A huge thanks to Rex for editing. This is a longer episode. I'm and so- I know uh, oh well, he doesn't get paid for this. <laughs> It was his choice, to be fair. It was his choice. <laughs> it's but, not slavery if it's voluntary. Correct. I offered to pay him, but he said no. <laughs> so, he said no. Um, but thank you, Rex, so much. His links are also in the description below. Check out his uh, blog page. Check out his Twitter. Check out his Instagram. Check out all that good stuff. And please, everybody, thank you so much for watching, and remember, life's too short, not talk big. Bye, guys! Sayonara!